So Simon, I was I was wondering, could you just briefly explain your job to us? Uh, what exactly does a chief executive do? Um, yeah. Um, JY, so I'm relatively new in the job. I, I took over this role back in October, and my job is managing the investments of USS, so University's Superannuation Scheme. Uh, we're the biggest pension fund in the UK, and we pay the pensions of university lecturers uh, as well as uh, finance, administration people, etc., within the university sector. So we've got about uh, 440,000 members of our pension fund. And putting it in a nutshell, um, our job is to ensure that we pay pensions to our members uh, when they fall due. Um, and we've got liabilities or pensions that need to be paid stretching out, well, 2090 is probably the point at which we stop really modelling them. But we've got liabilities that stretch out a long way into the future, probably 70 years into the future. So my job is running the team that's managing that money uh, with the aim of yeah, paying, paying important people the money that, that they're due. Thanks, Simon. Um, I was wondering, I know this wasn't scripted necessarily, maybe a few fun facts about who we are. You know, we're not just a sum. We're not just people with jobs, but but we're we're persons and human beings. Um, any passions or interests? Okay, well, I'm I'm married. I'm married to Rachel. We've been married for thirty one years, or we will. It will be thirty one years on uh, April the first, uh, April Fool's Day. Uh, it seemed like a good day to to launch into life with uh, with with Rachel. Uh, we've got five children, um, and I've got four of them at home with me at the moment. Uh, to put out a distress call on Wednesday to say we're scared that London's going lock, to get locked down. We want to leave. We'd rather work from, uh, um, well, from where we live, which is out in the countryside, rather than cooped up in our small flats in London. Thanks, uh, My eldest is married. Um, and uh, the only one who's not with us at the moment is my middle son. He got engaged on Saturday, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and so uh, he is um, staying in Oxford. I think he's more interested in seeing his bride-to-be than he is in seeing his parents right now. Indeed. Uh, um, what, what am I passionate about? Um, I'm a really sad old man. I enjoy um, all things that sad old men enjoy, namely uh, vegetable gardening, uh, extreme extreme exercise of some form. Um, cycling is more my thing these days. And then uh, reading history, uh, history books. I'm quite into them. Thanks, Simon, for letting us get to know you up, up and close, or at least the closest we can be right now. Um, yeah, just, just thinking more around the lines of faith. I mean, clearly that's that's something that you, you are passionate as, as well, given the title of the talk. Um could you help us understand, have you always been a Christian? Um, how do you get going? So I grew up in a family that went to church because that's what you did as a sort of middle class member of society in rural England um, 40, 50 years ago. So as a family, we went to church, but uh, 
did I understand what Christianity was all about? Absolutely not. Did I have a personal relationship with God? Definitely no. It just seemed to be ritual that you did, and frankly, it was a pretty boring hour. In fact, I'd say it was the most boring hour of my week, um, having to sit through church. Um, and as a young man, I was, a, I was an incredibly um, arrogant young man, um, and I thought in all seriousness that the biggest problem in the world was that no one was as nice as me, um, if you can believe that. And uh, I, was, I, was, um, I was invited on a Christian holiday camp as a 14, 15-year-old, uh, and there I heard the claims of the Christian faith for the first time. Uh, and uh, it was explained to me that Jesus had died on the cross for me, that he was God, that he was God on earth, uh, that I was a rebel, that I needed his forgiveness, and that he paid the penalty that my, that my rebellion against God deserved. And it was explained that, that he'd done that, and that all I needed to do was ask for forgiveness. And I was asked on that holiday um, by one of the leaders who'd given up their holiday to serve me uh, whether I had ever asked for God's forgiveness, whether I'd ever prayed a prayer uh, requesting um, Jesus' forgiveness. And I was very impressed by these people, um, and I, uh, I knew what answer this guy wanted. You know, he longed for me to be a Christian. And so when asked if I had ever prayed that prayer, I gave him the answer that he wanted to hear. Um, yes, yes, of course I have. Oh, that's marvellous, he said. When did that happen? I'm afraid the lies multiplied thereafter. That's one of the problems with lying, is that you have to have another lie to follow up the first Unknown lie. The participant is now joining. And I think um, that, that night, for, uh, for the very first time in my life, I had to admit to myself and to God that I was not the nice person I thought I was, that I needed God's forgiveness. Uh, and so there was me as a 15-year-old, uh, that's when I would say I became a Christian, mm -hmm. and that's when uh, Christianity became something real rather than just ritual for me. Thanks, Simon. Um, and, and without ado, um, I'll just hand over to yourself, really, to address us on, on the topic that you've done some time thinking about. Uh, and just to say, we will have plenty of time at the end for questions and answers, so if I could encourage you to keep your questions till then. Simon, over to you. Fantastic. Well, so, so the topic I want to talk about is, is does belief in God stand up to city due diligence? And, and look, I, I trained um, as a scientist. I, I went to university uh, to study, well, in my case, geology and metallurgy, uh, fascinating subjects. Uh, I won't bore you with them. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm used to the idea of, uh, of investigation and uh, scientific method. Uh, and my, my short answer to, to that question is, yes, it does. It does stand up to city due diligence. We, we could go down the route um, of looking at the world around us and point to the extraordinary um, improbability of a world such as this existing. Uh, and I could try and, and bring you a sort of a, uh, an argument that, that might persuade you around... Um, uh, the need for a God to exist, to have created such a, an incredible world such as this. Uh, the trouble with that is, is I think it's, it's, a, it, it's an argument that um, 
whilst I'm convinced by the improbability of DNA suddenly spontaneously existing, uh, you might not be convinced by that argument. We get into abstruse uh, scientific discussions pretty quickly. For me as a Christian, the, the question that I've had to ask is, uh, Jesus claims to be God, but Jesus is a figure of history, and I'll go on to explain why I'm confident of that. Um, if the Jesus of history is a real, uh, is real, Jesus claiming to be God, if he really was God, then belief in God stands up to suit you to diligence. So I come back to Jesus, the person of Jesus. Uh, I was asked by a colleague, or I wasn't asked by a colleague, I was told by a colleague one time, um, he said to me, Simon, I used to think that you were quite intelligent, and then I heard you were a Christian. I guess what he was effectively saying is you, you surely need to have had your brain removed for you to be a Christian. And my response was to say, Alan, we, have, uh, we should have lunch. Let's talk about this. Uh, let's look at the facts. So let's look at some of the facts. Um, Jesus, uh, that he existed is a fact of history. So you can go to Wikipedia, and not everything in Wikipedia is right, granted, but there you'll find uh, it written that it is, quote, firmly established that Tacitus provides a non-Christian confirmation of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, so let me read what Tacitus wrote um, about what happened after the great fire of Rome that burned much of the city in July 64. So this is what uh, Tacitus wrote. Consequently... To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So what we have there is, is Tacitus, a, a non-Christian, very definitely non-Christian. You can see that he doesn't think much of Christians from the way in which he describes uh, the Christians there. Um, uh, Tacitus is clear that Christus, Jesus Christ, uh, died at the hands of Pontius Pilate, uh, physically uh, a real death in, uh, in, in time. And, and you could similarly, you could go to Josephus, who was a Roman Jewish historian, um, writing about uh, 90 AD, and, and he will give you similar uh, non-Christian confirmation of Jesus's life and death. So we have Jesus as a real figure of history. And also, interestingly, from that report from Tacitus, what we've got there is confirmation that just 30 years after the death of Jesus, there were so many followers of Jesus, even in Rome, which was uh, a, a thousand miles away and more, still is a thousand miles away, uh, miles away and more from uh, Jerusalem, where Jesus hung out, that you had enough Christians in Rome for them to be uh, able to be notes for this fire that happened in Rome. So clearly something substantial happened for there to be of Christians a thousand miles away, just within 30 years of the death of Jesus. So 
Jesus lived, Jesus died, who was he? Uh, and the claims of Christians are that uh, Jesus was God on earth, that he was stepping in time and history, and that uh, God came to earth in the person of Jesus in order to reconcile, in order to, to bring back together again uh, mankind and God to, uh, to, to deal with the enmity that there is between uh, and their creator. Now, I guess uh, as a child, uh, as a young man, as an adult, I've had many, many people tell me that, uh, no, that, that's not right. Um, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was just a great teacher. And I guess I want to say, well, yes, Jesus was a great teacher, that he was, uh, that he was radical, that he was utterly countercultural, uh, that he came up with the idea of loving your enemies, uh, that it's he who's caused um, our culture today in, in, uh, in the West to be one whereby we think that treating all people as we would want to be treated is a good thing. That, that it's not just the important people in society who you give deference and honour to, um, but it's the smaller people, the least important people. That is, um, that is Jesus's worldview because um, he says that we're all created in the image of God and that we all have equal worth and dignity before him. So Jesus was a good teacher, but I want to say that, that Jesus's claims for himself uh, rule out the option of Jesus just being a good teacher, because uh, boldly, Jesus made claims that are frankly outrageous. He claimed to be God. Uh, he claimed to be able to forgive people's wrongdoings and their rebellion against God. He said that he personally would sit in judgment over all people at the end of time. And I want to suggest to you that uh, good people don't make claims like this, uh, that those are the claims of, um, of a deluded nutter um, or of a profoundly evil psychopath. So his claims would suggest that he can't be just a good teacher. Uh, and then there is what he did. Uh, and our Jesus did things that no mere human can do. Uh, he gave sight to the blind. He made those who'd been paralyzed since birth walk, and he enabled a deaf mute But perhaps the most shocking thing he did, or the thing that really stunned me when I looked into it, was that um, Jesus not only predicted his own death, uh, it's quite easy, actually, particularly at this time. I mean, many of us, uh, well, many of us are going to die. All of us are going to die. Uh, some of us will die through this coronavirus episode. But Jesus predicted not only his death, but he also predicted his resurrection from the dead. Uh, he spoke clearly to his friends of how he had to die how he'd be rejected by the Jewish leaders, how he'd be condemned by the Roman authorities, that he'd be crucified on a cross. But he also said that after three days, he'd come back to life again. So we've got in Tacitus uh, and Josephus two unbiased witnesses that he was indeed crucified. 
But what about the resurrection? He claimed he'd be resurrected. And, and as I've thought about it over the years, and, and um, in those early days when I would say I became a Christian, I hadn't necessarily thought this through. But in those first uh, late years of being a, a teenager and then into my 20s, I really thought this one through a lot. And I would say that the resurrection is the key fact in history. Because if Jesus was really raised from the dead, then that substantiates his claims. It would suggest that he really is in control of the universe. But by contrast, if he did not come back from the dead, well, then Jesus is not God. And frankly, Christianity is a load of garbage. Now, um, in, uh, in John's Gospel, John was one of, the, uh, one of Jesus' disciples. John wrote his uh, story of Jesus, and he records uh, the account of Thomas. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples. And Thomas is one of my great heroes. And I love his questioning skepticism. And, and after Jesus has died, Thomas then hears a report and to him, that report is quite simply unbelievable. And so Thomas refuses to believe it. And the report he hears is the report from 10 of his friends. And the 10 of his friends say that they've seen Jesus raised to life again. And Thomas knows that that's not possible because dead men don't rise to life again. It's impossible. We know that. And what I love about Thomas is that there is nothing uh, gullible or naive about him. And so when Thomas hears this report from his fellow uh, disciples of Jesus, he refuses to believe them. And yes, there are 10 of them reporting the same thing. But for him, that's just really embarrassing for them, because uh, obviously they're all deluded and, uh, and that's nuts. Because, again, we know that dead men can't be raised to life again. And so uh, I'm reading here from John, John's Gospel, chapter 20. Uh, and let me just read to you a few verses. This is reading at verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nail and place my finger into the marks of the nails, as I, I will never believe. Thomas uh, is the original skeptic. But what happens for Thomas is, well... A few days later, they're all gathered together. Thomas is with the other disciples, and John reports this. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put your finger Sorry put, out, sorry, put your finger here and see it in my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
So there is Jesus, flesh and bones, uh, with holes in his hands where the nails had been, and with a great cavern in his side where the soldier's spear had been thrust. And Jesus commands Thomas to carry out what he's threatened to do. Put your finger in my hands, put your fist in my side. Come on, Thomas, do it. Sometimes um, evidence that's presented to you changes you uh, to cause, uh, to changes you to, causes you to change your opinion. Um, that opinion may have been very firmly held over many years, uh, strongly and passionately. Uh, but then occasionally we're presented with overwhelming evidence that fatally undermines that belief system, and you have a choice. Or you go with where the facts, uh, as presented to you, are leading. Um, now look at the uh, what's going on in the world today. Um, a few months ago, we would have laughed at the idea of this happening. Uh, us all being isolated, uh, of death, uh, walking the streets, um, of a global shutdown, we'd have said it was highly improbable, that it was fanciful, that it was massively unlikely. But we probably wouldn't have said that it was impossible. Um, we would have thought of um, the possibility of this sort of global pandemic. Uh, my daughter at uni was watching the film, pandemic. I haven't seen it myself, uh, but I found I Am Legend um, a pretty scary and, um, uh, and disturbing film. Uh, perhaps it shows how old I am. The work in 1987, uh, just before the famous stock market crash of Black Monday. And I used to be of the opinion that it was unthinkable, that I would have said impossible I'd have said it was impossible for bonds to turn negative. Uh, but then in the summer of 2012, as the European debt crisis was warming up, uh, my Bloomberg screen started suggesting that short-dated government bonds in Switzerland had negative yields. And in fact, I don't know, can you, have I lost you all? I'm concerned about this. Simon, I can hear you loud and clear. I've just gone off video so that I don't take up bandwidth. I can hear uh, you loud and clear. I've lost stream. We can hear you. Can't hear you. You can. That's no, I can hear Sorry, you. Yeah. I okay, that's good. Uh, my Bloomberg took over and started showing me negative market, negative... Uh, events in, in the market, sorry. Um, so, yeah, government bonds started going negative. Um, we all know that that's impossible, or we all knew back then that it was impossible, but my my, uh, my dealers started telling me that they'd been trading in them. My fund managers told me that they were bonds. So, sorry, I appear to have dropped off. I don't know if I have lost you. We can hear you again. Sorry, guys. I don't know where where I got dropped off, but um, Simon, you're just talking about negative bonds and how people were trading in them. 
So yeah, please, please do carry okay. on from there. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, that was really a pathetic illustration of the fact that when uh, when you're confronted by overwhelming evidence that challenges your previous thoughts, uh, you can continue to believe what you thought before, or you uh, sometimes have to change your presumptions in the face of that overwhelming evidence. And for Thomas, that overwhelming evidence that confronted him was the person of the Lord Jesus in front of him. Uh, Thomas was convinced that being uh, raised to life from death was impossible, but he was the Lord Jesus. Uh, and the arrival of Jesus in front of him uh, caused Thomas to radically change his thinking. And uh, Thomas's reaction to seeing Jesus was to say to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus then commends him. He says, if you believe because you've seen me, Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Well, look, I've never seen the risen Lord Jesus, but what I have got are eyewitness accounts. Uh, I've got the eyewitness accounts not just of Thomas and of the other ten disciples. Um, but if you go through uh, the New Testament, you'll find there are at least seven other occasions, one of which involved over 500 people seeing Jesus raised to life again after everyone had witnessed him being uh, executed on the cross and, and Jesus uh, talked with people he was touched by them he ate with them uh, he was no ghost he was no spirit but he had flesh and bones he was really genuinely literally physically raised from the dead and, and John the writer of this has written he tells us so that we can believe that Jesus really is the Christ that he is the son of God and that by believing, we can have life in his name. And what's on offer through, uh, through the person of the Lord Jesus is life, life in all its fullness, life that starts in this world and goes on into the next one. And the eyewitness accounts to Jesus' resurrection uh, wrote down what they saw. And what we have, therefore, in this gospel account is real history recorded by real people. And what I think is interesting is that these people were prepared to suffer for their beliefs. Uh, do you remember how Tacitus described those Christians at the beginning? He said to the Roman emperor, he inflicted the most exquisite tortures on the Christians. Now, there is no way that this many people could have maintained a united front if, in fact, it was all a big fat lot. Someone would crack, uh, someone would spill the beans, and the truth would come tumbling out. Uh, Charles Colson uh, was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. Uh, you'll have heard of the uh, Watergate scandal, and Colson was the first man to be sent to prison uh, through the Watergate scandal. Uh, he was charged with uh, obstructing justice, and he was sent down in 1974. And while he was in jail, he became a genuine living believer. And this is what he's written. He said, I, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. 
Then they proclaim that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. So I want to suggest that Jesus' death was the best thing that's ever happened, because his death uh, means that my uh, wrongdoing, my rebellion against God, has been wiped clean. It means I can be friends with God, uh, and it means that I can have a joyous and wonderful future to look forward to. And I want to suggest to you that this is no dream world, this is no wishful thinking, this is no uh, airheads nonsense, because Jesus' resurrection seals the deal. It guarantees it. And so when I had lunch with my friend Alan, who asked me basically if I'd lost my brain or never had one to begin with, I said to him, as we finished that lunch, I said, Alan, will you go where the evidence leads you or will you remain in delusional denial? So that's the point at which I want to uh, stop and hope, hopefully I'm still on with you all and um, See, see if there are any questions.